Okay, so here we are now with chapter one, and it is titled A Few Embraces, A Few Dreams. And I realized in the intro, in the introduction for this series, that <laughs> a lot of what I was saying, or what I kept saying over and over again, is that I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm scared, I'm afraid to do this. And <laughs> of course, this whole story is about fear. Well, the remarkable thing is how this, these characters overcame their fears and faced fear and how they dealt with fear and how many people who read this book rid themselves of fear. So fear will be a recurring theme throughout. And another thing I'll mention, which is that I've decided I'll refer to Ken as Ken rather than as Wilbur. So when we're doing a, when you're doing a talk or a, or a explanation or a discussion of someone and it's of their literary texts and you don't know them personally, usually you say Wilbur or the author. And I think we'll take it more as, well, this is a story and it is a personal story and they're characters in the story. They're not just, or he's not just the author and she's just not, not just the author, but they're also characters, active characters in the story. So I don't know Ken Wilbur personally, but I will be referring to him as Ken. And if I ever get the chance to meet that man, I'm going to give him a big warm hug for all the shenanigans that he's been up to in his life. So where to? Where does the story begin? Well, it begins with Treya. And she meets the man of her dreams. Or as close as she can get to it, she says, which is in her case pretty close. And she's reflecting a bit on her life and how things are, and we find out a little bit about her. And she says, In all my past experiences with men, the sweet ones weren't brilliant, and the brilliant ones were definitely not sweet. I always wanted both. So you can see that she really feels that this Ken Wilbur man is a good match, and she goes on to be describing how she'd actually heard of him and his writings. And he'd, she'd even maybe cross paths momentarily at a, psych, a psychology, a transcendental psychology conference. And she'd read his books. And she's also reflecting on how, well, she's had these relationships, satisfying relationships, but she's never felt to marry someone. And she says, I wondered if I was afraid, or too much a perfectionist, or too much an idealist, or simply hopelessly neurotic. And at this stage, she's been about two years without having any sort of relationship at all, and had really resigned herself to the fact that, well, maybe she'll just be alone. And... Her backstory is she's done a bunch of things. You know, she's worked in environmental work. She's done skiing. She's done assorted odd jobs. She's also done teaching of skiing. And she's done 
some involvement in unconventional centres and worked around a few things here and there and she's done a bit of a degree and her interest is in, well, psychology and the environment and these sorts of things. And she keeps on talking about Wilbur, Ken, and the more she does, the more it comes out that she really believes he's someone quite brilliant. And the the quote that she includes here is that he's the long-sought Einstein of consciousness research. So that gives you a bit of an idea of how she feels about him. And it's not just her, but it's it's a real culture. There's a real following around Ken Wilber and his work, even in these early years. And Ken, on the other hand, we find out a little bit about him too, because he's got these two friends that he's living with, and they sort of say, hey, there's this great match that you should, there's this great woman that you should start dating. She's perfect for you. And he's sort of taken aback a bit because, well, they're, they're a couple and he's friends with both of them. And it's always sort of like, well, the, the guy will introduce someone, but the girl will say, oh no, she's not right for you because she's not good looking enough. But then again, neither are you. <laughs> But then the, the, the girl will, the, the lady will think of something and the guy will say, no, 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 she's not right for you because she's not smart enough. But then again, neither are you. So it's very funny how they, they sort of, they, they're sort of trying to find someone for Ken. They're trying to be the, the matchmaking couple for the third wheel. And every time they disagree, but then comes along someone who they're both talking about and they both agree. So Ken goes, whoa. Who could this be? And he thinks, if she's so great, why wasn't somebody with her? And still, he's quite sceptical about the whole thing. And he's very much, at this stage, he, say, he says this about dating. Quote, I loathe this whole dating routine. It was right up there with root canal. So what was so wrong with dying alone, miserable and wretched beats dating. End quote. And I can definitely relate to that. I can definitely relate to that. Big time. Because dating, well, it just it just sucks, doesn't it? Like what what do you do on when you're dating? You go out and it's obvious you're you're interested. It's obvious you're trying to work out that you want something from the opposite sex. And it's obvious, well, they're also trying to work it out and they're trying to weigh you up with other people. You try and be honest and you try and use your awareness and you try and be sensitive and you try and really express yourself honestly. But also you realize that some of it's a bit of a show, like you're just putting it on because you do want to impress them. You want to show your best self. But then also you want to be your authentic self. And then she's trying to decipher, oh, is this what this person's really like? And then you have to worry about, oh, are they going to call me back? Or should we see each other again? Or I don't know if I really want to see them. And then you're thinking, oh, maybe it was just bland conversation. Maybe it was just no connection there. But I really should find someone because I don't want to get used to being alone too much because then I'll never find anyone. I'll just be comfortable in my shell. 
but then maybe I should be more comfortable in myself and I should come back to myself. Maybe I should just forget about the whole dating thing and make peace with my life, work on my things, work on my creative projects, go deeper into meditation, find my own peak experiences that don't involve the opposite sex, and just be satisfied, just be happy with what you've got. So much better than having to go out and put on this front and it's so obvious like, oh, okay, so you're here and I'm here and obviously we both are trying to work out if we're right for each other or not. So how do we do that? Well, let's have a conversation. And the whole thing, it's just, ugh, grows a bit tiresome. It grows a bit fake. It grows a bit shallow after some time. So that's some of my reactions to this comment about dating being right up there with root canal. So we find out a bit more of Wilbur and it turns out that he's a bit of a smarty, he's a bit of a brainiac and basically throughout his education he scored full marks, just like 100%, top of the class in every class, in every way. Just brilliant. And then he went to medical school to do some biochemistry, and he was doing some dissection on cow eyes, this sort of thing, in the lab. And there's this sort of urban folk or what do we call urban myth about him and what he was like at grad school. And the story goes like this, that he turned up on the first day and he made friends with someone and he said to this friend, every time there's an exam or an assignment for this course, tell me the day before and I'll go and do it. And he did that. And he had this friend who was just notifying him. And then he skipped out of all the lectures, all of the tutes, everything. And he went to study, well, religion and mysticism and psychology and transcendental meditation. And while he was doing all that, he was still actually keeping up with the course. He was actually still managing to do top marks. So that's gives you a bit of an idea of just how smart this guy is, just how much of a brainiac he is. And he also says that the reason he was doing this was because he'd grown a little bit tired of the science paradigm. He was tired of what it meant to be in the world and just live under that worldview. And he says this about medicine as well, which really says something about the hardness and the crudeness of the empirical paradigm. And he says this, quote, The practice of medicine wasn't creative enough 
for my intellectual tastes. One simply memorized facts and information and then rather mechanically applied them to nice, unsuspecting people. It struck me as a glorified plumbing job. It also struck me as a not-nice way to treat a human being. End quote. So he was looking for something that science just couldn't provide, and that's what drew him to the great religions and the psychologies and mysticism. And he starts to read about two to three books a day and really just not doing anything. He doesn't do anything in his degree except for except for actually do it, which is the astonishing thing. Like most people, when they do a degree, that's what they're doing. That's That takes the majority of their time. But he, of course, has so much capacity, cognitive capacity and comprehension capacity, that for him a graduate degree is just a small portion of what he's working on. And he says this also, that if human beings are composed of matter, body, mind, soul, and spirit, then science deals handsomely with matter and body, but poorly with mind and not at all with spirit. So... He's sensing there's something much bigger out there than the scientific paradigm. And there's even a story about how he does a lecture or a a presentation for his degree. And instead of doing it on some obscure lab topic, he decides to do it on something more philosophical and into the nature of or the, the mechanics of the paradigm of science and into, well, what does it mean to say, who am I and what does it mean to have meaning? Like, what is meaning and why am I here and how do we know what we know? So these are epistemological questions that get at the structure of the paradigm rather than giving the correct answers and working within the paradigm correctly and in the way that is it's, it's meant to function. So he's breaking out. So Ken and Treya, well, Ken's friends get them to come over for dinner or something one night and get them to meet on this sort of blind date, half date thing. And once they're all together, we've got Ken and his two friends and Treya. And all of a sudden, Ken's friends, they start bringing up their relationship issues and they start saying, oh, I've got this problem, I've got this problem. And they're sort of going back and forth. And, and Ken sort of becomes counsellor for the evening. He becomes the, the moderator. And they've got some quite big issues. They've got some quite deep things going on between them that they need to resolve. And, you know, things like, oh, do we want to have children or not? Now, that's a big one for any relationship. Are we going to have kids? Because a woman has a longing for children. A woman deeply has a biological urge. Well, it's not really an urge. It's something, it's more like a longing than an urge to have kids. And of course, the woman's thinking, well, if this man isn't keen, I need to find someone else. I need to find someone to be the father of my children. I need to find someone who's going to be sticking around to help raise these children. So this is a serious 
issue in relationships and Ken keeps working back and forth and trying to really probe and understand well what's the truth of the matter and how do you really feel and and Treya or Terry as she's called at this stage is really impressed he's sort of just listening along like wow he's very sensitive he's very open but then it's also a bit funny like you you go to meet someone for dating and (laughs) what you see is well this is what dating is like this is what a relationship is like oh what a mess (laughs) but the night wears on and they don't get to talk much but what does happen is Ken puts his arm around Treya. And that's where this phrase comes from, love at first touch. And Treya had said, well, uh, uh, one of them, I don't know if it was Treya or Ken, but they would they had said, it's not going to be love at first sight because he's got this <laughs> he's got this big bald head. <laughs> so that was very funny. No love at first sight, but love at first touch. So They're in the kitchen. Ken puts his arm around her. And for just a moment, she gives in. She puts her arm around him and there's a merging. There's an energetic merging. There's a dissolving. And this is what Ken says about that moment. Quote, I remember thinking, oh great. It's four in the morning and I have some sort of weird mystical experience right in the kitchen of one of my best friends, merely by touching a woman I've never met before. This is not going to be easy to explain. End quote. And they part ways that evening without really having said much because the other couple have taken up all the time. And that night, Ken recognizes as he lays in bed a series of subtle energy currents running through his body. Now, energy is one of those things that it's a little bit tricky to talk about sometimes. And really, that's the whole... It's one of the tricks of clearly speaking about meditative processes, which is how you talk about energy and the energy body and what is happening. So here's what Ken Wilbur says about this moment of energy currents running through his body. Quote, It felt very much like the so-called kundalini energy, which in Eastern religions is said to be energy of spiritual awakening, an energy that lies dormant, asleep, until aroused by an appropriate person or event. And strangely enough, in a spooky way, the same thing was happening with Treya, at the same time, and here's what she was saying about it. Here's how she describes it. So this is her personal description of a subjective experience, in her own words, of a phenomenon that comes from the Eastern Eastern religions. 
This is the kundalini energy. So this is how she describes it. Quote, An amazingly powerful surge from my heart that goes down into the center of my body and then up towards the top of my head. So pleasurable and blissful, it's almost painful, like an ache, a longing, a reaching out, a wanting, a desire, an openness, a vulnerability. Like how I would feel perhaps all the time if I weren't protected, if I dropped my defenses. And yet it feels wonderful. I love the feeling. It feels very alive and very real, full of energy and warmth, jolts my inner core alive. End quote. So that's some pretty powerful stuff. That's some pretty amazing stuff. And there is something a little bit spooky about it. There is something a bit unsettling. It's not exactly pleasurable by itself. It is pleasurable, but it's also a little bit like a desire or a painful, like an ache, she says. And the other thing that's astonishing about this is that she says this one bit where like how I would feel perhaps all the time if I weren't protected. Now there's a deep significance in that because this kundalini energy awakening experience at first is, well, it's a mystical experience. It's a rare occurrence. It's a peak experience, we could say. It's, a, it's an anomaly within our experiential field. It's something we've never experienced before when it happens. And yet she already has the intuition that she is in some ways capable of that experience all the time. It's capable, it's possible that it could be a normal thing. It could be something that happens all the time. Now, when we say capable, then we need to be careful because an energy like that or a process like that is not entirely a matter of you're doing it, you're bringing it on, you're making it happen yourself. And she says, well, actually, if I dropped my defenses, that's what she says, would do it. So dropping your defenses is very different to actually actively trying to make something happen. Dropping your defenses is not a doing in many ways. So that's quite significant. And they sort of both have these experiences and they all get a bit like, oh, this is just just this is just some weird stuff that's happening. I should just forget about the whole thing. And they all try and they both try and sober up and put a restrained face on it and they're just like, oh, okay, whatever. This is just something it'll pass. But then they start having dreams about each other only a few days later. 
and, well, because they're busy, it is about a week before they see each other again. And they do go on a first date, and they do get together, and basically from that first date, they were together non-stop. And Ken says, I've found her. That's all he that's all he could think was I've found her over and over again. He's just thinking, I've found her. And this is a truly remarkable story of human connection. It's a truly amazing description of what it means to have two people meet and have their spiritual energies awakened from that meeting. And I remember the first time I started reading this story, and I just thought, I just thought, wow, like I was blown away by this. I thought... I thought, I want that. I thought, I really would do anything for that. That is just so out of this world. So intimate. So deep to the core. To meet someone like that and connect with someone like that. And it's sort of funny that Ken and Treya had sort of given up the idea of dating or being with someone. And remember, at this stage, they're quite older. They're not, this is not a young love. It's a mature kind of love. Trey is 36 at this stage. And at that age, well, you're sort of, you know, you've had some relationships, you've had some things, you've got some life experience, you've done some traveling, and you're starting to think, well, what are my older, what are my older years going to be like? My younger years are behind me. My youth is starting to slip behind me and I want to move into that, well, with maturity and with awareness. And it's so easy to just think, well, it's not possible. It's not, it just doesn't happen. Like relationships from the fairy tales just don't happen. And it's so strange that, well... There's, there's nothing that we can deduce from this as a method as to how they found each other. It's not like, it's not like this is a, a self-help how-to-date <laughs> story. <laughs> it's not like we can now then go out and, and have, have this same process happen to us because we just do what they did. <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost like that funny thing where... You, I don't know if I've ever done this, but I've imagined myself doing this. Is you go up to a couple and you say, "Where did you meet?" and "Can I also go there to get one myself?" <laughs> it's a bit like, "Sorry, mate, you're way off the mark," if you're saying that. And I mean, they're both also long-term meditators, so they're sensitive beings. They're aware of these subtle realms. And they're well-read on psychology and philosophy and religion and transcendental psychology. 
So in many ways, you have to be ready for the relationship. You have to be open to it and you have to be sensitive. To live in the energy body and to be aware of it when it does awaken, well, that takes practice. That takes a certain amount of development. And that's the harsh truth. That's the harsh reality. Well, it's not It's not a harsh reality. I don't know. I mean, it's a... I don't know if it's a harsh reality. It's a... It's a truth that can't be sidestepped, which is that you have to be aware to get the benefits of what awareness brings, as simple as that sounds. And when I read this, I thought, how do I get like that? How do I make myself into that? How do I get those awarenesses? How do I experience those energy body movements? How do I be ready for when kundalini awakening occurs in me and another sort of thing is it it sort of it sort of undermines dating in a way that is funny because you think this is such a glorious connection that Treya and Ken have it's such an, a magical thing like they're meant to be you know the the partner of your dreams and if you compare that to sort of dating life where you just sort of, oh, who, who, who are you? I guess, oh, I guess you'll do or you sort of work or you don't work. You know, there's some things I like about you, some things I don't. And I guess the things that I don't like about you, I should use as a, as a metric for my own openness and my own shadow and all that. And, and all that, it's, it's, just a, it's just a mess. It's just like, oh, it's easier just to, you should just not date. You should just not be with anyone. And the sentiment that can come from that is, well, don't be with anyone until you find the right one, until there's a really deep connection, until it really is love at first touch. Which, of course, might mean <laughs> that we end up alone. Which <laughs> strangely is how these two were before they met each other. So Treya tells her family and her friends and they go around and meeting each other's friends and sort of open themselves up to each other's social circles. And Treya says that she's not afraid of making a fool of herself because she's never raved about a man in her life, but this one she's just raving about. And they're basically always together, non-stop, and they're always holding hands. And there's this funny thing of like couples where public displays of affection, they can be a bit like when you, when you have certain couples, they, they sort of try and hide it. Like, oh, don't kiss in front of the kids or don't kiss in public, this sort of thing. And that's okay. Some people like to keep it private. Some people are feeling a bit funny about it. But then there's other times when the couples, they're just together and they don't care. It's, it's not on them about how they feel or if they feel. It's not on them 
to feel awkward about the public displays of affection because they don't feel awkward. It's whoever sees it, well, they can feel awkward if they want. And and I've known a couple of people in my life. I've known uh, this is this is common in couples where they are so madly into each other that they don't care what anyone else sees. They don't care what anyone else is thinking or what they say. And that's why it's so it's so revealing that Treya says she doesn't mind making a fool of herself. That really does sum it up. It doesn't there's no trying to look smart, there's no trying to look any, any of that, none of that. It's just you just know it. We know it right down to your bones. And it's not a knowing of the mind, it's a knowing of the heart, it's a knowing of your energies. It's a connecting on all levels, on body, mind, soul and spirit. So, ten days after their first date, they were engaged to be married. And, yes, it's quick. But the story goes that Ken sort of asked her to marry her, asked her to marry him, and she just sort of said like, oh, well, if you didn't ask me, I was just going to ask you. Something like that. It's a very funny sort of engagement. And from then on, they're together. And this chapter ends with them in a cute little cabin in the woods in nature, in a place that is well familiar to Treya, and there are birds and trees and mountains and rivers all around. And they're just having some quiet time together in front of the fireplace in a cozy little cabin. And there's this one little scene at the end of this chapter, and it's very short, but I'll read it to you. We are alone, sitting in front of the fireplace, fire blazing against the cool night. The electricity in the house, once again, not working. Right there, on your left shoulder, Treya says. Can't you see it? See it? No, I can't see it. See what? Death. It's right there, on your left shoulder. Are you serious? You're kidding, right? I don't understand. We were talking about how death is a great teacher, and suddenly, on your left shoulder, I saw this dark but powerful figure. It's death, I'm sure. Do you hallucinate often? No, never. It's just that I saw death on your left shoulder. I don't know what it means. I can't help it. I look at my left shoulder. I don't see anything. There's nothing in this world quite like falling in love with that significant other And it really is a miracle 
when it happens. It's a true miracle when it does. And there is something mystical about it. There is something of fate or the divine floating around it when it does happen. And to be reminded of it can only really happen when it actually does happen. Us as spectators from the outside, we can only imagine, we can only hope for that experience. And when it does, a lot of things make sense. (laughs) A lot of things surrounding human relationships make sense. And we can be reminded that all we ever really wanted, all that we were ever really striving for, was to fall in love, was to be in love. And so much of life can be spent forgetting about that, that when it does happen, it's quite a surprise. So that's a few embraces, a few dreams. And it really is a remarkable connection that these two people have. And that's all I have to say for now. <laughs>